most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's healthcare and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. While the United States Congress is debating healthcare reform, there's intense scrutiny of how good and how bad our system is. People look to systems in other countries and see lots of advantages, though sometimes I wonder if it's one of those things where people always see the grass looking greener on the other side of the street. Today, we're going to get the inside scoop on Canada's healthcare system. Our guest today on the program is Dr. Kevin Smith, who practices across the border in Niagara Falls, Canada. Dr. Smith is an incredibly accomplished dermatologist. He's published numerous clinical research articles, as well as sometime back publishing a, on the effect of, of capping income in the Canadian healthcare system. He did his residency training in the United States, so he's seen medical practice, at least some kind of medical practice, on both sides of the border. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Steve. Well, look, um, you trained at the Mayo Clinic. Um, it's in Rochester, Minnesota. I don't know that Rochester is the same as New York City or anywhere else in America. What can you tell us about your experiences with the U.S. side of the healthcare system? Well, training at the Mayo Clinic and being taken care of as a patient occasionally at the Mayo Clinic uh, was a wonderful experience. Uh, you never had any uh, sense that there was any restriction on the resources that were available, and uh, people were taken care of uh, very well and very efficiently. And Actually, many people who have to pay cash for their health care, um, fairly affluent people usually, uh, go to the Mayo Clinic because it's actually better value for their money, and it's a more time-efficient way to get taken care of uh, than uh, what would happen if they had stayed in Chicago or uh, Minneapolis or something to get their care. It's more time-efficient, I presume, because it's better coordinated care? Very good infrastructure. Uh, it was uh, sometimes said that the Mayo Clinic was the one place on earth where a second-rate doctor could practice first-rate medicine hmm. because the systems and procedures and the support around uh, you were so good that even if you were having a bad day, uh, you could do good work. Uh, but in fact, they attracted a lot of very, very good people. So uh, by having uh, a collection of outstanding physicians working in an outstanding environment and a very well-integrated uh, uh, health care system, um, they were able to deliver very high-quality care and, and do it for a very reasonable price. But I don't know whether or not it would be possible to replicate that on a mass scale across the United States. But there certainly are a lot of lessons that could be learned from the Mayo Clinic and other organizations like it. Yes, I wonder to what extent, you know, I think all doctors are really good doctors and some systems may be better than other systems. Um, one has to wonder if maybe industrializing medicine would have certain advantages and disadvantages and that some big company that said, look, we're going to do a Mayo-style practice everywhere and uh, would be able to generate uh, customers the way McDonald's generates customers for a consistently well-prepared hamburger. Yeah, I never felt that it was uh, in industrialized medicine. It was, uh, it was just a particularly unique kind of group practice where you had very good uh, staff, very good record-keeping, uh, very 
medical, medical education going on at all levels there. Uh, that doesn't suit every physician. I don't think if you took every doctor I know, uh, maybe a good half of them would be able to work out just fine in a Mayo Clinic type of environment, but the other half of them, uh, for various reasons, uh, would prefer not to work or, or couldn't work in that kind of a setting uh, successfully. Yeah, well, I guess industrialization means different things to different people. You, you could imagine a Japanese auto plant where everything is extremely well-coordinated, where people have access to each other, and they're working to produce the best possible product in the best in the best way. We have uh, a Dell computer plant here in Winston-Salem, and uh, it's just phenomenal the way uh, everything is put together so well and so well coordinated. Those kinds of aspects. It's one of the the examples of the best of America uh, when you see something like that. So there are a lot of positive connotations that flow from it. here in Canada, that kind of thing uh, would probably not arise because we have a very monolithic, um, inflexible uh, health care system, at least certainly here in Ontario. And the government uh, makes a lot of announcements. They're endlessly making announcements. But at the end of the day, uh, they've got uh, absolute control line by line of the fee schedule and of uh, many other aspects of the operation of physicians' offices and of the hospital system. Uh, so there's really no, very little room for entrepreneurial activity uh, or for anybody who uh, wants to do things uh, differently from what the government has prescribed. Well, that, you raise a number of issues. So when you talked about Mayo, one of the things you said that was really beautiful was that it really felt like there were no restrictions, that you got whatever you needed. Yeah, and now I'm getting the sense that the Canadian system doesn't get you that. No, there's a severe resource limitation. It's very difficult and sometimes impossible to get the uh, laboratory and imaging studies that you need uh, to take proper care of the patient or to get uh, help from another specialist, for example, or get access to other resources. So if a patient has a a condition that's the least bit complex or that requires the... uh, services of several different physicians, uh, coordinating that uh, in the Canadian context is uh, very difficult or impossible. Now, those are the kind of things that scare us uh, here south of the border. Um, Are you saying that that is the routine or is that an occasional outlier patient who's, you know, whose needs really aren't fully met? of patients up here in Canada whose needs are not fully met, uh, either because of uh, severe delays in access to care um, or in uh, failures of the system to uh, meet the needs of the patient. And because the system here is completely inflexible, the government uh, has got absolute control over uh, the fee schedule and over the hospitals. Uh, So the doctors have to work for whatever the government pays and either you do the work for what they pay or you don't work. And if you charge the patient for a medically necessary service in Ontario, you'd be liable for a $10,000 fine. So it's a take-home pay for seeing a follow-up patient who's got uh, lupus or pemphigus is six Canadian dollars after taxes and expenses. Either you work for that or you just don't take care of that patient. Well, so, so unlike the British system, there's no secondary system of, of, of private doctors who manage these patients? No, 
not at all. That's completely forbidden. Uh, if Bill Gates was a Canadian, uh, regardless of how productive he is or what his resources are, he'd have to get in line with everybody else and wait his turn, uh, regardless. Uh, and if he wanted to get faster care or better care, he'd have to go down to the United States. Now, paradoxically, an American who wants to come and see me, say somebody wants to come over from Buffalo to see me, uh, they can come and see me tomorrow. They can pay cash on the barrel head, and I'll take care of their pemphigus or psoriasis or whatever complex problem they have. Uh, and they've got instant access to my services, and a Canadian has zero access. I won't see that Canadian next month or nine months from now. There is no waiting list. I just won't see them uh, for the amount of money that the Canadian government offers. That's fascinating. So you mentioned the possibility that U.S. citizens would come across the border to Canada. Uh, are, are many citizens doing U.S. citizens doing that, and is it for the care of medical issues, or for more for cosmetic uh, treatments, or is it just to pick up their medications? Um, well, all three. Uh, I I see a, a trickle of acne patients, for example, coming over uh, who've got bad acne and need to be treated with medications like Accutane, Isotretinoin, uh, which is very difficult and complex to prescribe in the United States and very straightforward here in Canada, and much less expensive here in Canada. Uh, so occasionally they'll come to see me about issues like that. There are a lot of uh, American patients who come to see me every day uh, for treatment with Botox and Juvederm and laser treatment and things like that. And I think that they come, uh, they originally came back when I started in 1999, 2000. They came for the price because we had a major price advantage, but then I got very good at what I do, and now uh, they come, you know, for the quality as much as for the price, I think. That was what I, the sense that I had, that uh, given what a phenomenal dermatologist you are, that you're probably attracting these patients on the basis of quality. Um, but it sounds like, at least for medications, the cost of patients is lower where you are than it is where I am. Well, it's nice practicing on the border, Steve, because sometimes... Uh, you get things in the United States that we don't have yet here in Canada, and sometimes we have things that you don't have or we have a better price. Um, so, yeah, it's true that in some cases uh, people can come from the United States to Canada and pick up their medications for a better price, or they can get things here that aren't available yet in the United States for various reasons. Um, but people are also able to order medications over the Internet uh, in the United States and all over the world. and. Uh, I think a fair number of Americans now bring in their medications by mail order from Canada or India or places like that. And uh, by and large, that seems to work just fine for them. Although when you purchase things on the Internet uh, from somebody you don't know in a foreign country, there are significant chances of getting ripped off. But it's, I have the impression that, that that's a system that actually works pretty darn well and problems with it are pretty rare. Yes, well, sometimes it's the same manufacturer making the same medication and I guess there's certain levels of, of scrutiny that and potential problems that could take place, and one has to be mindful of those. Well, one problem that, uh, that explains the difference in cost of medications between Canada and the United States is that uh, government regulation and litigation are much more of a problem in the United States than they are in Canada. And so somebody has to pay for that, so the American consumer pays for that. Uh, it's not just a case of the... Some people would argue, well, the drug companies are just overcharging the Americans. But in a competitive marketplace, uh, the litigation that, that American manufacturers have to deal with uh, is very substantial. 
and it's much worse than it is in most other jurisdictions. Well, you mentioned Accutane, and I think the company that made Accutane, at least in the United States, took it off the market ostensibly right. because of that very issue. Yeah, uh, it became unavailable, and now um, there are generic manufacturers who are selling it, but they are also going to have to price the product high enough to justify the regulatory and uh, litigation burden uh, that they face in the United States, which is very much different from what they would experience in Canada or uh, practically any other Western democracy. One of the things that I think people here point to is that government has really – is a huge, potentially a huge purpose, uh, purchaser but has largely abdicated their market power and, 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 and have put in place rules that forbid our government from negotiating price with uh, pharmaceutical companies. So in Canada, you have the one purchaser. Is well, part of the no, reason the price – in Canada, the government uh, probably pays for, uh, depending on the medication, perhaps 30 to 50 percent of all of the medic all the prescriptions filled in Canada are are paid for directly by uh, various government agencies for old people, people on welfare, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, and the rest uh, are paid by. Uh, the rest are paid. Uh, to probably 80 percent of the people have got private uh, drug plans through their work, which uh, pay for the prescriptions. And about maybe 20% of the prescriptions are uh, paid for cash on the barrel head by people uh, like myself who don't have a drug plan. And if I need a prescription, I just have to pay for it. So so what keeps the price of drugs down in Canada? Is it the 20% of people who are paying out of pocket? Or is it the government, which pays for, uh, what, 30 40% of the prescriptions, negotiating the price down with the, saying, look, you charge us too much, we just won't buy it? Um, at several levels, the government, um, in order to get a license to sell a drug in Canada, uh, the drug companies have to enter into negotiations with the federal government, um, and uh, they have to uh, show some evidence of why they should charge a particular price for a drug, and if they want to increase the price of the drug, they have to be able to justify it. Uh, so that helps to hold the price down, and then the provincial formularies, each province uh, pays for an awful lot of prescriptions for older people and people on welfare and so forth. And because they're they're paying for almost half the prescriptions, they've got a lot of leverage uh, with the drug companies uh, as far as pricing a particular drug goes. And if they can't reach an agreement, uh, then the uh, province simply won't pay for the drug and people have to pay for it with their own money. This has happened with some of the very expensive chemotherapeutic agents, which were just so darned expensive, things like Avast, and uh, for a long time were so expensive that uh, the government wouldn't pay for it, and if somebody needed it, they either had to charge it to a private drug plan or buy it themselves or do without. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm hearing from you is that caps on physicians' pay uh, have some big limitations on what gets done, and maybe we'll talk about that in more detail. Similarly, these limits on what the government will pay for medications, have those caused heinous problems or just occasional problems for just those really expensive cancer drugs? Oh, most people are able to get uh, the medications they need uh, most of the time, and there are a few medications uh, which are 
used by small proportions of the population or which are very expensive, which are just not available in certain provinces. Hmm. It's, in that regard, somewhat similar to the system they have in Oregon, where the uh, government of Oregon has established a list of diseases that they will pay for, and if you don't make the cutoff, then they just won't cover the care of your disease. And uh, as far as I understand it, that it covers both medical uh, bills and also pharmacy bills. And in effect, that's what happens in each province. Each province just says, we can only afford to pay for certain things, and uh, that's it. Beyond that, we just can't afford it, we're not going to pay for it, and you might wind up dead, and that's too bad. Well, you know, I, you, you've, you've taken on this area of cosmetic dermatology and become a real global expert on the topic. My area of expertise is psoriasis, and I have... I think the issues are a little different there. When I offer a patient who has a couple spots of psoriasis, oh, look, I can give you this generic medication. It's only $4, but it's kind of greasy. I got this other one that costs $800 a tube, um, and it's got, oh, a vitamin D analog and a cortisone medicine all mixed together. It's really easy to use, but still kind of messy. Or I got this two three $300, $400 foam or spray. Um, different people will say different things, and often if they're really well insured, they'll say, well, give me the $800 tube and the $400 tube. I'll try them both, see which one I like better, since they're not paying for it. So in a system where people aren't paying for it, there's problems, but there's great availability. But somebody's got to say no. In your world, it's the government who says no. And A lot of the time, yeah. And that also happens with private drug plans. For example, Green Shield deals with a lot of the automakers. The automakers are on the ropes now. So Green Shield went from being the most generous of all the drug plans to being the most stingy. And uh, they won't pay for a lot of things. They just take a hard line and they won't pay for it and that's it. All right. So I guess bottom line, if somebody's paying for it, the person paying for it often ends up deciding what they will and won't pay for and whether it's, you know, ins private insurance or government, as long as the person, the patient isn't paying for it themselves, somebody else is going to be involved in the decision-making, for better well, or worse. If, if, for example, the public uh, collectively want to uh, hand over all of their uh, choices to the government in that regard, uh, the public benefit by the government uh, running a more efficient system in some ways and uh, because of their mass purchasing power, being able to drive prices down below what the free market price would be. But the other side of the coin is that when the public hand over their purchasing power to the government, then they don't have their purchasing power anymore. The same thing applies with physicians. Uh, if the public collectively in our system of representative democracy decide that they want to hand the government uh, essentially complete control over the provision of medical services, then the government's got all the power and all the decisions in that regard, and each individual has got basically no power and no decision-making and no, no recourse, no alternative. The benefit uh, to the public collectively is that we spend 10% of our GNP on health care. In the United States, you guys spend about 16%. Yeah. But the downside is that the individual Canadian has lost their freedom of choice. Their only alternative is to uh, go to the United States if they want something uh, that the doctor won't provide or can't provide. You know, human nature being what it is, I wonder if to some extent 
the fact that the Canadians know their care is limited, they're less than optimal care. They recognize they're getting less than optimal care. But the fact that even Bill Gates, if he lived in Canada, would be getting the same optimal care makes them feel that it isn't that it's in some way fair that uh, that everybody is dealing with the same system. Um, I don't think that they adequate. Most people are kind of like people who belong to healthy people who belong to an HMO. And they think this HMO is the best healthcare system in the world until they get sick, and then they have a run-in with the healthcare system, and they realize, holy cow, this system is really not working right. It's very deficient, and uh, I'm in a hell of a jam here. Uh, how am I going to get the care I need in this crummy system? If it's really that bad, so if you had a heart attack, would you be headed to Buffalo? Oh yeah, I mean that's my basic plan. Uh, if I got really sick, I'd. If I had to do it, I'd go over to Buffalo and hire Learjet and fly to the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it would be more cost-effective for me to do that than to stay here and uh, uh, languish in hospital. And, and if you don't go into hospital with something, you'll come out with something. You'll pick up some kind of an infection. So uh, I don't really have very much confidence in the Canadian health care system to take care of me. And I hear plenty of stories about physicians who can't get the care they need when they need it here in Canada. Uh, and I hear lots of stories from patients about the problems that they've had. So um, you, you, you need a different system in the United States. The one you've got now, there's an enormous amount of waste and uh, a lot of uh, perverse incentives uh, to over-service patients in the United States. But I sure don't think that you people would tolerate a Canadian-style system for very long. You are more likely to want to have a system like they have in Oh, Germany or Switzerland or something like that, where everybody's got a good basic level of care. But if you want to spend the money, you can get uh, better access to care. Uh, you can pick and choose your doctor and so forth. Well, you raise such good points about you hear the problems. Sometimes I wonder whether they're representative or not, or if just the problems tend to be what people talk about. At the same time, it, when when you hear, oh, I love our system, you want to make sure you're not just listening to the healthy people because the healthy people are certainly going to be happy with that. Well, they don't really know what they're talking about, and the government does a lot of advertising, and, and the healthcare system, at least in Ontario, is really driven by focus groups and polling, and the government is constantly running focus groups and polling, and the government is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, constantly making announcements. They're announcing this program and that program, and this target and that target, and they'll set a target they can meet. And then when they've met the target, they sort of say, well, look what a great health care system we have. Uh, but it's just very selective and uh, very highly misleading. Uh, but, you know, if you can, if you can, uh, they're very effective at uh, keeping most of the people thinking that, you know, progress is being made and we've got problems, but we're dealing with them and so on and so forth. When really things are getting worse uh, and worse, not better and better. It, it, it can be depressing at times. Well, uh, let's I, just... I used to have one of the largest psoriasis practices in Canada uh, until I shut it down in about 1999 because, uh, you know, things just uh, got worse and worse and worse, and it didn't make any sense to continue uh, providing that level of care and service uh, for the declining amount of money that I was getting paid. You know, you take home pay for a consult, after taxes and expenses would be about 17 or 18 Canadian dollars, regardless of how complex and difficult the problem or the patient was. And then for each follow-up 
follow-up visit, your take-home pay would be maybe $6 after taxes and expenses. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I'd rather go home. I wonder if if this is related to that article you wrote about uh, caps on physician pay. And I remember years ago we were in email discussion, and, and you were describing a world where you would meet your cap in August – and then you could close your door for the rest of the year because you weren't going to make any more money. Well, you'd be working for free, basically. Uh, the government at one point just uh, blindly and arbitrarily here in Ontario imposed a cap of, uh, I think, $400,000 on the gross revenue of all specialists. Regardless whether you're an office specialist with, with quite a high overhead or whether you're a hospital specialist with very little overhead, and regardless of the demand for your services, uh, regardless of anything, and any billing that you put in above $400,000 was paid at two-thirds of the fee schedule, and anything above around 500000 was paid at one-third of the fee schedule. So it didn't make any sense, and, and a considerable number of physicians left uh, Ontario uh, at around that time. It was uh, impossible to uh, make any kind of economic sense out of uh, running a practice under those circumstances and carrying the liability and responsibility uh, and capital investment and staff and leases and all the rest of it uh, under those circumstances. Yeah, is that around the time that you decided psoriasis was not the thing to specialize in? Um, it was uh, around about that time, yeah, but I kept going and going uh, probably long past uh, the point when it would have made any sense. And, and I get the sense that another area attracted you. Well, uh, at around that time, I was watching Botox and lasers and everything else uh, during the 90s. And uh, at that point, it wasn't very mature technology. But around 1998, 99, 2000, those things uh, really became uh, much more effective and practical uh, for patients. And I learned a lot about them and, and became interested. I was more drawn to them. Um, if, if, if they hadn't uh, come along at about that time, uh, I can't conceive of myself practicing medical dermatology here in Canada under the current circumstances. One plan that my wife and I had, uh, because we live right here on the border, I thought, you know what, there's such a supply-demand imbalance here in Canada, I think I should just move over to Niagara Falls, New York, and I could open a full-blown multi-specialty clinic over there, and we wouldn't even bother with Americans. We would just take care of all the Canadians who cannot get the care they need when they need it in Canada, and they could drive across the Rainbow Bridge and come and see us over there, and we could take good care of them. And we would maintain our Ontario licenses, and so we could order Ontario blood work and Ontario prescriptions and all the rest of it. But, you know, they could come over, to, and people would come into the, the office, and, and they'd say, well, I just spent, you know, $600 on naturopathic and various other quack remedies and stuff they bought off the Internet, and they're so disappointed because none of that worked. And now they expect me, because I'm a physician, to just lay on whatever resources are required and not even think about whether or not I'm getting paid. Uh, so I thought, well, if they can afford to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on quack remedies, they can darn well come over to Niagara Falls, New York, and, and pay me a proper fee uh, for the work I'm doing. So because the Canadian system doesn't cover cosmetic services, you yeah. can charge what you want for that? Uh, well, you can charge whatever would be reasonable. Yeah. You know, if, I, if you overprice your services, you're not going to have any patients. But, Fair enough. Yeah, and, but at least it's a free market. And is the same thing true for the drug? Since the presumably a drug like Botox is uh, when used for cosmetic services, does does the company that make it get to charge what they want, or do they still have to negotiate with the Canadian government for the price of the drug? They still 
have to negotiate with the government uh, for the price of the medication. Does it end up being less expensive there because of that? It is considerably less expensive, Steve. Uh, we pay the equivalent of about 330 U.S. dollars for a vial of Botox, and you would pay about 550 U.S. dollars for the same vial of Botox. Oh, that's fascinating. But I guess it's one thing for a patient to go out of the country and bring something in. It would be another matter for a doctor to go out of the country, bring it in, and then sell it. Oh, that would be a serious offense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you wouldn't do that. But I find that my aesthetic practices, these are really not, I thought when I started out doing Botox and lasers and fillers, I was worried that these people would be a bunch of nitpicking, narcissistic uh, people, but they're not. They're just the nicest people. They're, they're highly productive, wonderful. I enjoy them at least as much as I ever enjoyed my uh, medical dermatology patients. And because the pace is much slower, I'm able to take my time and get to know them as people. I find it to be a more satisfying uh, practice then when I was uh, doing medical dermatology and just running like a hamster on a treadmill all day long. Now, you raise a great point when you start talking about how satisfying it is to spend more time with patients. Uh, one of the the projects I'd been working on was a physician rating site here in the United States, doctorscore.com, and we, we, we look at all the data that come in on, on what it is that makes patients satisfied. And, of course, the time they spend with their doctor is uh, is one of the factors that determines even more than that. It's whether they felt they saw a friendly, caring doctor. And I imagine if you're feeling satisfied and you're getting to spend the time you want with them, then you're coming across as friendly and caring, and patients are going to be happier as well. And uh, on the medical side, uh, because the fees are so low in Canada uh, and so tightly controlled. There's just no flexibility. You're going to get paid six bucks regardless of the complexity of it, regardless whether they have six different unrelated problems. That's it. And so do you um, cut short the time you spend with patients since you're making so little per patient? Oh, yeah. That, that is basically essential. If you don't do that, you're, you're literally going to wind up uh, having a negative income. But then they put in place the caps to make up for the fact that people were going to try to make it up in volume. Did they end up having to get rid of the caps? Yeah, they did. Uh, that that just became increasingly uh, counterproductive. You see, I can take care of a, uh, a skin problem very efficiently, uh, make the diagnosis correctly uh, the vast majority of the time right off the bat, give the patient the most effective treatment and instruct them uh, in the right way. Uh, so the total cost of the healthcare system of an acne patient or psoriasis patient or whatever coming to see me is way lower uh, than if they go and family doctor flounders around and, and in a sort of half-baked way tries to get to the bottom of their problem. Uh, and finally, the government realized that this, this cap on specialists like myself wasn't saving money, it was costing money. Because people weren't using specialists when needed. Yeah, they, they, they couldn't get to us. I mean, we're not going to work for free. We're not going to work uh, and, and where it's going to cost me money out of my pocket every time somebody walks through my door. That would be ridiculous. And so uh, we just said, look, if I don't get paid, I don't work. Uh, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I told the patients, you're going to have to talk to your MPP about that. You're going to have to talk to your government about that because this is between you and them. It's not between you and me. Oh, well, this was this is, is very enlightening information because, you know, this the, these issues are being debated now, and, and it's really helpful to know exactly what the Canadian system is like. We may have to talk to somebody who's had a heart attack in Canada about their 
they're sort of, gosh, if we could find somebody who's had a heart attack in both countries that could really let us know what their experiences were like. No, it would be, if you just tell one of each, the chance of having a misleading idea would be pretty high. Uh, and, you know, you'd have to talk to probably 10 or 15 other doctors, and if you'd have to get them to speak frankly the way I'm speaking. Uh, if you if you called 100 uh, uh, people who've had heart attacks or maybe even a, a reasonable sample, maybe a dozen or 20, you'd get a better feel for the spectrum of care and the spectrum of outcomes and the spectrum of experiences. And and that's what you would get. You would get a spectrum. There would be some who would be very happy and say, yeah, it was great. I'm really pleased with our system. And others who would be just absolutely miserable. And there would be many people who really don't know they, they don't know what they're missing. For example, somebody in Canada might have a heart attack. They might sit for six hours in the emergency room, and uh, during that time they might lose 20% of their cardiac muscle, and they recover from their heart attack. And they might think, oh, yeah, we have a good system. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not too bad. Whereas somebody, that same person who had gone to a U.S. hospital uh, might have been taken care of within a half an hour and might have got through it with uh, 5% loss instead of 20% loss. But the Canadian didn't really realize what they had, but maybe somebody was nice to them. And, and on that basis, they'll say, oh, we had a great system. An American might have gone in, might have got great care, might have had almost no loss of, of cardiac muscle, great recovery. And they might think they had a terrible system because they had a $500 copay. Oh, my God, I wish I was in Canada. I had to pay 500 bucks. Little do they know uh, how much better off they are uh, because they had way less loss of cardiac muscle and, and substantially less loss of winding up dead. Yes, and there's what you pay in the copay and then what you pay in the insurance bill that you don't see, just your monthly insurance payment. And it may be that that $500 copay was what they saw uh, in a system like Canada where you're paying it in taxes and stuff. You may not realize you're paying that money anyway. Yeah, So the uh, and there is a lot of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of government... uh, basically manipulation of public perceptions uh, as much as they can by making announcements and putting full-page ads in the newspaper. They buy a lot of media, and uh, inevitably, I think, all those large media buys are going to have some effect on the media. Uh, They're going to say, wow, you know, the government is probably 10% of our gross revenue. Maybe we better just pull our punches a little bit when we're being critical of the government, because they can uh, they can adjust the amount of advertising they buy from our newspaper. They can adjust that up or down within a certain range. They're not going to cut us off 100%. That wouldn't look good. But uh, if we play ball with them, maybe they'll be a little more inclined to play ball with us. The same way the newspapers tend to pull their punches when they're dealing with the automobile industry and with the real estate industry, which buy a lot of ads. And so maybe we're going to go a little easy on them. Well. That's the way the world works. Well, I I, I hope that's not true. Well, that's but well you, documented. Yeah, as far as real estate and automobiles go, uh, the media uh, are, are pretty well established that they do pull their punches because the auto dealers and the real estate people uh, can certainly cut back their advertising in a particular newspaper if that newspaper uh, takes a critical uh, look at those industries. I'm too naive. All right. Well, Kevin, um, this has been terrific. Um, one of the things we like to do at this point in the program is to give our listeners a few specific tips on on better health or better health care. And uh, um, I, I wonder what kinds of tips you might have for a U.S. audience. Uh, 
those maybe who live close to the border, maybe those who don't? What, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I can tell you that uh, sun protection from a, a dermatology point of view, and you'd probably say the same thing, sun protection and smoking are two of the worst things for the skin. And I can see a big difference between the skin of my patients who live in Niagara Falls, New York, and the ones who live in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Because the ones who live in Canada uh, tend to smoke a lot less, and they tend to get less sun exposure and less use of tanning beds. Uh, and the ones just across the border who are the same people uh, really look uh, older and more weather-beaten because it's easier for them to go down to Florida. Uh, they seem to use tanning beds more. They smoke more. And they really do look a little bit prematurely aged uh, compared with uh, similar-age individuals in Canada. Uh, so that'd be number one. Protect yourself. Put on a sunscreen every morning. I put on something every morning that's got sunscreen in it right hmm. after I shave, all the way from my hairline down to my collarbone. And most of my patients do, too. Uh, and smoking is uh, pretty uncommon uh, up here. So it would be a good thing if they would stay away from that. Vitamin D is another turning out to be a particularly good thing to take for many, many reasons. And I'm encouraging my patients to take 4,000 units a day of vitamin D. 4,000? Is that what you're taking? Yeah, that's what I take. Uh, some some of the derms now, as you know, are taking as much as 8,000. I had not heard that. The, the estimates of uh, our vitamin D requirements are really uh, a lot higher now than they were when they were uh, first established uh, 50 or 60 years ago. And vitamin D, there are vitamin D receptors on every cell in your body. And being dermatologists, we're a little bit more involved with vitamin D than most physicians because we're very aware that it, one of the ways that it's produced is in the skin after ultraviolet light exposure. But now we know that you can take the pills and get the same benefit with a lot less risk to your skin and uh, no, basically no risk to your skin and a whole lot less expense and trouble than going out in the sun. Seems like if you were a dark-skinned Canadian, you would be at high risk for vitamin D deficiency. You would be, and, and flowing from that uh, would be an increased risk of cancer of the prostate in men, for example. We know that women who are supplemented with vitamin D have a, a lower chance of uh, uh, falling down and injuring themselves. Uh, they seem to have better balance, for example. Uh, people have better exercise tolerance. And there are many, many, many other benefits now that are, are coming from things like vitamin D. Uh, simple things like uh, getting your flu shot, keeping your vaccinations up to date, uh, can make a big difference in how things turn out as time goes on. Uh, paying attention to weight, avoiding things like... Uh, uh, type 2 diabetes uh, can uh, make a big difference in a person's life. So there are simple things. If you have to take medications on a regular basis, get one of those seven-day pill boxes uh, or even get uh, uh, five or six of them and you can just load up a whole month's worth of uh, pills and vitamins at once and then you'll be more likely to take your medicines every day. And it's adherence to a long-term medication treatment program for example, for uh, blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, diabetes, uh, that really makes a difference in outcomes. And if you have to open a bunch of bottles and take one pill out of each bottle every day, you're less likely to do it. Yeah, well, my vitamin D pills are also in one of those seven-day boxes. Uh, are, are yours? Oh, yeah, you bet. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I'd fall by the wayside, just like uh, a lot of patients do. Uh, but I did do a pretty good study of adherence to treatment programs many years ago, and that became very clear that the simpler things are, the more likely people are to stick with it. So we try to get people on a simple once-a-day treatment program, and there's a much lower dropout rate if you do that. 
Well, Kevin, thank you so, so much for talking with us today. Uh, I appreciate your time. Well, it's been very enlightening. Talk with you. Take care. Thank you. Mm, bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Well, Dr. Smith paints a picture of the Canadian healthcare system that isn't a complete bowl of cherries. It doesn't sound like it's a kind of system we would want to mimic entirely. Perhaps we can find a way to get the best of that health care system while maintaining the best of what we have today. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll come back next time when we discuss a powerful tool in helping people achieve great health care, and that's the power of the patient advocacy group. This is Getting Better Healthcare, and I'm Steve Feldman. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit drscore.com. That's D R S C O R E.com. And we'll see you back here next week.